Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everybody. I'm Jack Petranker. I'm a host for the Spirituality and Mindfulness channel for the New Books Network. And we're here today to talk with Seth Zuiho Siegel, who is the author of a new book called The House We Live In, came out in 2023. And we're looking forward to the conversation. So, Seth, welcome. And um, good to see you, Jack. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get we'll get right into it. Um, so, um, tell me something about your background, or tell our audience something about your background. Um, kind of a short biography, I guess. Okay. Well, well, first of all, I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I was director of a psychology program at a large urban hospital, and was on the Yale School of Medicine clinical faculty for about 30 years. Um, and I just have like a, I'm just a little bit into psychology now. I don't practice anymore, but I still write about it. So I, I have a monthly column in the Mindfulness Research Monthly, which uh, comes out every month. And um, I'm, I'm a, 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 on the review editorship of the Humanistic Psychologist. So I still have a, a toe in the water when it comes to psychology. but. I'm also an ordained Zen Buddhist priest. I run a Zen community here in Westchester, New York. Um, I'm a guest teacher of the Insight Meditation uh, New York Center. Uh, and I'm, I'm also uh, on the contributing, I'm a contributing editor to Tricycle, the, the Buddhist Review. So that's my kind of main role right now as a kind of a Zen Buddhist priest. Great, so, so um, how does that fit into to the book. I mean, what what led you to write the book, and how does it tie into your background? Well, there there are a couple of things that led to my writing the book. Um, as I think you know, Jack, I wrote a previous book in 2020 that was looking at Buddhist philosophy and Aristotelian philosophy, and trying to find some common ground between them in terms of what's the nature of the good life for for people. And um, as I've learned more and more about, as a Zen priest, as I've learned more and more about Chinese language and culture, I've started to read the Confucian tradition, you know, Confucius and Mencius and Shenzhe and Jushi and Wang Yangming and, and, and going forward from there. And I became impressed about the fact that, that there was a great deal of commonality between the three different traditions, despite their many differences as well. And what I wanted to do is look at all three of them and do a kind of cross-cultural philosophical analysis and try to see what they all had in common to say that might be something that's useful for us today as, as modern people. I, I don't want to, uh, to bring those forward just as they were, but I want to see if these are resources for, that we can use today in terms of understanding what virtue and wisdom are. So that was one strand, but the other strand was just living in the turmoil that's the United States right now, and, and, and I might say the world order as well. And um, the basic question about how does a pluralistic society with people from many different um, uh, racial and economic and ethnic and religious backgrounds with different beliefs about what the good life is, how do they manage not to kill each other? How do they manage to somehow get along, reach compromises uh, and, and fight fairly about their differences? And, and uh, that's to me a major question. And, and along the way, I have been reading a lot of John Dewey and reading Dewey's ideas about how social change occurs, and and I would, and I wanted to tie that into the book too. That that um, that the kind of ethics and morals and values that we have are not handed down since time immemorial. They're things that change and adapt to new situations. 
but that that process of change and adaptation is one that takes a long horizon of time. And I wanted to give that perspective as well in the book. Okay, great. So you're that's a lot of strands that you're weaving together. Do you think, did you come away at the end with the feeling that it worked? Um, well, does it work? I think that the vision that I have of what the good life is in, in, in modern society and the vision of the virtues and the kind of wisdom that contribute to living well, both individually and together collectively, I think that that vision works for me. The question is, how much can people come to agree? I mean, I tried to make it as transcultural and transsectarian as I could, but, but how much can you, can you get enough people to agree on something like that? then it can really uh, make some kind of change. And I guess one of the other authors I've been reading recently is, uh, is, is Reinhold uh, Niebuhr, the Protestant theologian, who is very pessimistic about the degree that which people change. He says the biggest pe problem for people is not their ignorance, but their selfishness. <laughs> that you can instruct people all you want about what's a better way to live, but if it's against their perceived interest, self-interest, it's very hard to get them to budge. So I don't say I'm optimistic about that, but uh, but I think that if more and more people could adopt this as a way of looking at things and a way of valuing things, I think we would we would be would be better off. It's just a question of how to get people to do that. Right, a big question. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I I want to quote from your preface uh, where you you say this book's central thesis is that liberal, pluralistic, multicultural democracies require a broadly accepted ethical framework that must be to some degree, at least some degree, transsectarian and transcultural. So you've already talked about some of that, but I, mm -hmm. I think what this brings in is the idea that there has to be a, a shared or at least broadly accepted ethical framework. So, so is that kind of the way you see the book unfolding? Is that what you're trying to do in the book? Yes, I'm trying to make a case that this is an ethical framework that many, if not most people can agree on today if they thought about it and that if we all looked at things this way we could really we could make some significant changes in the way that we're functioning as a democracy yeah okay so so the way you approach that so we're starting to get now more into the into the substance of the book um, the way you approach that is is through um, bringing together these three strands of virtue, wisdom, and flourishing. You have chapters on each of those, and then you have a, a chapter at the end on, on connecting, um, on, on coming together, I guess you could say. Um, so um, can you say something about how virtue, wisdom, and flourishing connect? Yeah, I, I think first of all that virtues are only virtues because they either contribute to flourishing in one way or they actually constitute part of flourishing in one way. But you need to have a larger vision of what the good life is to understand why the virtues are necessary for it and how they help in that way. Um, so, for example, if you're looking at the Buddhist path, um, compassion is practice of compassion is both a way to get to become a Buddha. But once you are a Buddha, it's also one of the qualities that a Buddha has, you know, kind of an unlimited and universal compassion. So we want to talk about the virtues as both leading to a better life, but also exemplifying that better life once you get to whatever that endpoint is. So I think we need some kind of vision of what, for us as modern people living in a pluralistic democratic society, what, what does flourishing mean for us today? And, and I think that's an important question because a lot of us are living lives that don't contribute to, that don't lead to flourishing. They're, we're pursuing values, for example, that are promoted by the culture that don't really make people happy in the long run. 
uh, and people would be better off if they valued something else instead of what they're pursuing right now. So we know from a great deal of psychological research, for example, that pursuing external goods like wealth and beauty, for example, does not people who pursue those are not happier than people who, who prefer um, benevolence and cooperation and fairness, for example, as goals that they want to want to pursue. They're, those people are actually happier. And we could all agree that if we weren't so much co uh, focused on concentrating wealth and we're more focused on being benevolent and fair to other people that we probably, you can see easily how that would lead to a better off uh, situation for all of us. So, so I mean, I, I, I think that's the thing I wanted to do is to kind of tie the virtues in and also wisdom in with what it means to flourish. And, um, and I kind of enumerate a set of seven virtues that I think are universal to all cultures um, that are and, and kind of point out how they are, how I understand them and how they're also connected with flourishing. And then I also look at the question of wisdom and I look specifically at Aristotle's idea of practical wisdom. And what does that really mean? Because Aristotle never really defines it at all. Is that a single faculty or is it a whole constellation of intellectual qualities and so forth? And so I try to break that down too. I think that's an area where we're having a great deal of trouble right now and people discerning what's true and what's false uh, what to, who to believe, who's a reliable source and who's not a reliable source, what constitutes evidence and what doesn't constitute evidence. I mean, these, these are questions that we're, we're, are troubling our society every day right now. Yeah, they certainly, they certainly are. So, um, that list of seven virtues, I, I don't think I'll ask you to list all seven unless you'd like to, uh, but, um, you do draw on other sources besides the Buddha and Aristotle and Confucius. At least you mentioned some, some other sources. And in the end, you come up with a kind of idiosyncratic list. And I, I, assume, <laughs> I assume that's because uh, you felt that, that that was the one that worked for this society at this moment in time. Um, well, what, what I found was that I think that the virtues that and, and the idea of wisdom that's exemplified in all three of the ancient traditions, that you can also find them today in other traditions as well. It's not as if, uh, I mean, we can find them in the Judeo-Christian and Islamic traditions. We can find it in uh, the humanist traditions. We can find it in the African uh, Ubuntu tradition. I mean, no matter where you go, the same kind of values are extolled and talked about. And you find them in the New Testament, the Old Testament as well, and Rabbi Hillel. You know, wherever you look, you find them. So that's what I want to point out, too, that although I've drawn them from these ancient sources, they're really kind of universal. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and one of the things you point out, and I, th I think of this as an Aristotelian point, is that virtues very often consist of going to the midpoint between extremes. So could you say something about that? Yeah. Um, so, for example, Aristotle talks about courage as a virtue. Uh, and what he says is courage is the midpoint between um, rashness and cowardice. Okay, you don't want to be someone who rushes off into every battle, whether it makes sense enough, you know, even if you're a, a minor force that's, you know, that's destined to lose the battle and everyone's going to get killed. That's not, doesn't make sense. You want it to be in, in, you want to use wisdom to moderate courage and tell when it makes sense to fight and when it makes sense to retreat. And it's the same thing with um, generosity. You want to be generous to friends. You want to be able to give to charitable causes and so forth, but you don't want to give so so much away that your family becomes impoverished, for example, where you no longer have a home to live in. Um, so you have to find a kind of a balance between uh, between all of these qualities. And it's the same thing with conscientiousness. You want to be conscientious enough to to do. If you're an air traffic controller, you want to really pay close attention to everything that's happening. You don't want to make mistakes. You want to be very conscientious. 
but you don't want to be so conscientious that you become like a type A personality or become uh, an obsessive compulsive. Nor do you want to be so lax and relaxed that you know you, you just kind of drift through life purposefully. You want to find that midpoint, that sweet spot. I I suppose in part that's um, because you're talking about virtues as they're practiced by people living in everyday society. Because it does strike me that you know in Buddhism, which is what I'm familiar with, um, you know you do go to extremes if you if you enter a monastic community or. You know, you basically, I mean, there's so many stories of the Buddha who does sacrifice everything. That's right. But, but, so the moderation part is partly just, okay, we live in this society, unless we're going to withdraw from this society and withdraw from all of the relationships that we've established, it, it makes more sense to approach these things in moderation. Is, is, is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement. And, and I also am... Uh, I don't talk about it very much in this book, but I've talked about it elsewhere. That I'm, I'm fairly critical of the monastic ideal. I, I don't think it's something that most of us should be aspiring to. I'm, uh, I'm not saying that it's not right for some people. And, and it may even be inspiring that there are such people in the world who do this, and they point out our own limitations and that we could do better at what we're doing. But I don't recommend it as something everyone ought to do, or most people ought to do. Right. Well, it would lead to the speedy demise of, of everybody if, if people all became celibate, right? So that's right. there's that's right. that. Which may be good for the planet, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. The, the final solution to climate, the climate emergency. Um, okay, let's not, let's not try to go there. Um, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at one point in the book, you, you offer a program for developing the virtues. You say, take a week and really focus on each one. Is that something um, you've worked with? Have you had, in, you know, in your community or for yourself, or, um, or is it just how how did that idea come up, and and what kind of um, experience have you had with that? Ah, uh, well, I haven't done it quite like it is in the book, but I've done it, for example, with the sixteen bodhisattva vows, where I might take a month on each one and think about what it means, how much am I living up to, and how much am I not. And what does it mean when I'm not? Uh, does it mean that I have to try harder? Does it mean I have a wrong idea about it? You know, just really trying to explore that. Uh, and, I, and, I've, and I've done that as well with, uh, with, the, with the perfections, the paramitas, you know, where I've worked on one for a while. And, and so I, what I think is really helpful is to, uh, and I've done it with also with the, um, with the five lay precepts, for example where you know, I might, uh, uh, might work on just one, like, what does it mean not to kill? Okay, well, wait a minute. I, if, I'm, if I have tuberculosis, I'm going to take an antibiotic and kill those bacteria, you know, or if I have termites in my house, I probably will get some kind of insecticide and not allow my house to crumble. What is it? My white blood cells are killing you know, bacteria all the time. I mean, what does it mean not to kill? And so that becomes a, a koan in the, in, the, in the Zen tradition. Um, and it really becomes a question of uh, how, how little killing can I do, you know, and still feel like I have a life well worth, worth living. And um, I mean, even when you're talking about eating, you know, do, do you, are you a vegetarian or not? If you, even if you're vegetarian, you're killing vegetables and so forth. There's a, this whole question about where are your limits and where's the wise place to be. And I think that's always a process of discovery and exploration. I don't think there are hard rules that say, this is the rule I'm going to follow. I'm going to follow for my entire life. It may be that we change. And our understanding it over time, but I think it's it's always worth exploring. And the same thing with lying, you know, 
there are times when lying makes sense. You know, when the Gestapo comes and asks you are, you, are there any Jews hiding in your house? The answer is no, you know, even if there are. Or if somebody shows you a picture of their baby and they say, look at this, and you don't say, oh, what a wrinkly looking baby. You say, what a beautiful baby, it's the adorable, you know. There are times when little white lies actually are the right thing to do. Um, there are other times when even little lies are exactly the wrong thing to do, though. And so I think that's a whole process of lifelong exploration, you know, of dis discovery. Um, there are all kinds of lies, for example, that aren't really harmful, but we tell them to exaggerate something that happened to us to make us make an amusing story or to make ourselves look a little bit better, or a little bit less worse. You know, these little tiny distortions that we do all the time. How much are they really necessary for our lives? Maybe, maybe, maybe. So I think each time that we find ourselves telling an untruth, we can ask ourselves the question, was that really necessary? Um, if I were in the same situation again, would I want to do that again? If do I want to uh, contact the person I lied to and make and make an apology to them, or is that not necessary? You know, these are all areas for very rich exploration, and I think it's the way we grow. One of the main things I got out of the Confucian tradition is the and and this is true also for Aristotle and the Buddhists though is that is that moral growth, the virtue virtuous growth, is a lifelong process. There's never a point in your life when you're done. So. Confucius has a famous quote, for example, where he talks about each decade of his life up to his seventh decade and how his understanding of morality changed in each decade. Mm. Um, so I think that's the question for us. Are we growing? I mean, it's not as if uh, moral development ends in late childhood or early adolescence and then we're set for life. We always have a new voice to hear from or a new, a new problem that arises that causes us to look at things differently. And this is how we grow by, by, by looking at these problematic aspects of what we've believed in the past and trying to understand them better. So when you're talking about virtue, um, you say that, that all three of the traditions that you're relying on uh, practice or, or advocate a kind of ethics that is what is called by modern philosophers virtue ethics, as, mm -hmm. as opposed to, say, consequent utilitarian ethics or um, rule-based, yeah, deontology. I was going to try to avoid that word, not to scare people off, but uh -huh. <laughs> but um, yeah, rule-based ethics, deontology. Um, so, um, do you do you think? I mean, that's your approach too. Then is basically a, a you know to cultivate the virtues clearly because that's one of the main themes of the book. Um, but doesn't the consequential, I mean, there's always the question of whether the consequentialist view, the utilitarian view, has to play in at some point. Well, well, it does. I mean, if you're evaluating your actions and you're finding out that you had an, an intention to do something, but actually the absolute opposite occurred inadvertently, you have to learn from that. You don't want to keep on doing the same thing again, even what, you, even what you're doing is harmful. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, it matters a great deal whether your actions are actually harmful or actually beneficial or not. But um, but I don't think it can be the only uh, the only the only measure measuring stick that we use. I think I think some things are just good in their own um, without having to wonder so much about the consequences. You know, yeah. uh, I, I suppose the utilitarian part comes in partly with this idea of the virtue being a midpoint. You know, because. You know, you might think, well, virtue is a virtue. I've got, I've got to do that. Um, but you're aware of the consequences. You use the example of rashness and courage. Yeah, too much courage is rash or too much honesty is rude, you know, and right. so forth. Right. right, right, exactly. 
Yeah, too much too much justice is merciless, you know, and mm -hmm. so on, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, there's a, a, a great line in a Paul Simon song about uh, there's no tenderness in your honesty. That's yes, uh, exactly right. Yeah. Um, so when you come to talking about wisdom, uh, you, you start off at least by, by saying that, you know, there's received wisdom and then there's practical wisdom, the, the phronesis, as Aristotle's term, see now I am scaring people off. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's emotional intelligence. So uh, would you say that there has to be a blend of those three? Well, I, 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 I talk about emotional or social intelligence as part of uh, practical wisdom. It's, it's one part of it, but not all of it. Um, so, so I just want to be clear that when we're talking about wisdom, we're not just talking about being able to use the hypotho hypothetical deductive method, you know, mm -hmm. and, and be able to know logic the way that Aristotle, for example, understood logic. Um, but there's more involved in it. There's, there's a mindfulness involved. There's the wisdom of the body that's involved. Uh, and there's also a whole kind of uh, being able to read social situations. And there's a whole set of skills about how to deal with other people effectively, you know, that are also part of practical intelligence. For, for Aristotle's definition of practical intelligence was doing the right thing in the right way at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very much like the Buddhist idea of right speech, you know, that, it, that it's not that speech not only has to be gentle and well-intentioned, but it also has to have the uh, positive effect. You know, if, if, if some piece of truthful truth that you're giving someone else isn't going to be useful to them and just going to raise hostility, it's not the time to say it. So you have to, it's that whole kind of question of being able to judge, you know, uh, practically what the effects of your action are going to be. You also talk about, about the importance of speaking from the heart. And when I read that, I thought, well, that must have to do with your practice as a clinical psychologist. That, that, <laughs> that's pretty fundamental. Is, 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 that, is that right? It is. Yeah. But it's also, I, I think, true of Buddhism as well, that, you know, speaking from a very authentic place, mm -hmm. um, speaking a kind of truthfulness that's, that comes out of a, a kind of a beneficial intention mm -hmm. to others in the world. Yeah, and I suppose wisdom has to do then with connecting to that place in your heart where you can speak authentically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I guess the other thing I want to say is that for the other thing I got from Confucius, and this is true for Buddhism as well, he, he said that of all the virtues, there's one that's like the prime virtue, and, that, and that's benevolence or, or human-heartedness or humaneness. There's a kind of a kind of sense of goodness of intent and purpose towards other people and a natural affection and caring and tending for to others that he says is like the prime virtue. And I think that's true for Buddhism as well when Buddhism talks about loving kindness and compassion as the prime virtues. Yeah. And, I, and, it, and it's related, it, you, you, you have a, a, a section that I particularly liked on, on wholeheartedness. Now that comes up in the chapter on flourishing, which we haven't so much talked about yet, but um, I, I would think that those come together. You know, that, Again, acting from the heart and, and wholeheartedly, and then being wholehearted in your engagement with others, right? So that's where the benevolence and compassion comes in. Yeah, and, and, and the wholeheartedness really comes from the whole, the whole Buddhist tradition, the whole Zen tradition of, of being present in the moment, but being authentically present in the moment, so that when you're with another person, you're authentically with them in that moment in a kind of an I-thou relationship. Right. Um, and that certainly comes both from my, my past as a psychologist and also from my past, I also uh, worked for a number of years as a chaplain in the hospital and 
the idea that you're just meeting someone you've never met before ever and you're only going to be with them for a certain short period of time it's not like you're going to see them for weeks or months like a psychotherapist you have one time one meeting okay and the question is how can you make this an authentic thing that's transformative for this person and it, it means both of you find some way to speak directly from the heart in that moment right and it's transformative when it happens it really is I'm tempted to tell a story, but this is not about me. This is about you. So I, I will resist that temptation. Um, let's talk about the. Um, I want. I want to say one thing. I want to say oh, one sure. thing, thing about wholeheartedness. That that the other thing is about is about um, savoring, so to speak, the events that occur within each moment, giving them some attention, because I think a lot of the richness of the texture of life comes from our ability to be present, not in our heads somewhere but to be actually there with whatever is happening and that's why i included in the chapter on flourishing because flourishing means more than just making some accomplishments or having some relationships but it means being fully present and wholeheartedly present with all of that if we can live that wholehearted way that transforms our entire life and in, in magical ways i think yeah that's nice so so flourishing so again we'll, we'll use a, a scary greek word eudaimonia um mm -hmm which is, is the Greek word that gets translated usually as flourishing. Um, do you think that that's different in the different systems or do you think that they can be treated collectively? It, it is different. So, uh, you know, I talked about this in my previous book a bit, the difference between enlightenment, for example, and eudaimonia. There are, um, there are aspects of the Buddhist model of how, how well we can live that go well beyond eudaimonia. So there's a belief that we can kind of reach this kind of, I would say, transhuman state where we've transcended the problems of ordinary life and ascended to some higher level in which um, there's a perfection of well-being as well as a perfection of goodness and decency in your life. Um, Aristotle is much more practical about that. He says, I don't think, I don't think that's really possible for most, it, it, certainly for most people, not for me, <laughs> he would say. You know, um, we can we can always do better than what we're doing, but there's no end point of perfection that we can reach. And of course, there are parts of the Buddhist tradition uh, that say that as well, that that there isn't any final enlightenment. There's enlightenment beyond enlightenment. You know, uh, Dogen talks, for example, of going beyond Buddha, for example, Buddha beyond Buddha. There's always, no matter how big your awareness is, or your understanding is, or your compassion is, it's always possible for it to be more. There's no there's no final end point. And, life is a journey towards that mythical hypothetical endpoint that doesn't really exist you know um so yeah i think i think that there are aspects metaphysical uh, aspects and ontological aspects of of enlightenment for example enlightenment in buddhism means the end of transmigration you know from lifetime to lifetime uh, it it involves some kind of ontological commitments to there being some existence beyond the bodily existence for example and those are things that aren't part of eudaimonia so i, I think it's possible to separate them out, but there are also things they have in common. So I don't want to, I don't want to say there. I would say that eudaimonia is like a milder, <laughs> a milder level of enlightenment. <laughs> okay, and and then the excuse me, enlightenment light, enlightenment okay. light, yeah. Um, so what about the distinction? And and this will start to get toward the kind of social dimension of of what you write about. Um, between social flourishing and individual flourishing. I mean, you know, it seems like one of the things you say, I, I think, and maybe we'll talk about that more later, is that, that um, 
one of the goals of society should be to promote individual flourishing, but but there's also the question of the whole society flourishing. Absolutely. Well, first of all, as an individual, you can't flourish, really, if the rest of society isn't flourishing. If you're living in the middle of civil war and discord and climate change and everything else, there's no way that you can really flourish. Uh, even if you're at the apex of the economic order, you know, and you have more money than anyone else, uh, if the whole society is in disarray, you have to hire bodyguards to make sure that you're not kidnapped or your children aren't kidnapped. You know, if everyone is if everyone is doing what they ought to be doing in a society, then we're all flourishing. If if one group isn't flourishing and it's going to cause a, um, an insurrection against the power of the wealthy and so forth, that's not really flourishing either. So, I think we have. To, I think that's the first thing I want to say that we want to live in a in a, in a society in which there isn't civil disorder where people find ways to kind of manage their disagreements, where people don't cheat each other and steal from each other and kill each other. And, you know, life isn't, as Hobbes said, you know, a war against everyone against everyone. We want to live in a society where judges do their job, where policemen do their proper job, you know, where, where uh, bankers don't discriminate. You know, we want, we want that kind of world. And so I, so I think um, we, it's our job to do everything we can to, to see that the world we live in is that kind of world where everybody has the opportunities to flourish in the way that makes the most sense to them, as long as their vision of flourishing doesn't cause undue harm, you know, to other people that we care about, you know. So, so that's the vision I want to, to provide. And it's kind of it's kind of uh, John Dewey's definition of democracy, which is democracy is a, is a form of organization in which everybody works together to create the conditions for maximum flourishing in everyone in the society. Right. So so. Um... I do want to talk about that, but maybe we'll put it off just a little bit. I, I, I mm-hmm. want to um, I want to go into the one of the things you say, which is that part of flourishing uh, consists of of making a connection to something greater than ourselves. Um, yeah, one of the dimensions of flourishing I talk about is the dimension of meaning, that okay. our lives have to feel meaningful to us, and and lives can be feel meaningful in all kinds of ways, but for most of us the average person, for me, <laughs> I'm speaking for everyone, right? For me, meaningfulness means um, that the people that I come into contact with most frequently feel that their lives are better because I'm present in it in some kind of way. It's kind of like the uh, that movie, It's a Wonderful Life. You know, if I wasn't mm-hmm. here, would things be better or worse? For most of us, that's what it means. But for other people, it may mean something else. It may mean um, being part of a larger movement in history or a cause of some kind. Uh, you know, I think about uh, dedicated revolutionaries or uh, uh, I think about scientists working for a cure for cancer or something like that. They, they have some kind of larger view of what they're working on, that they want to make some contribution to the whole world, so to speak. And other people get their connection from the connection to nature or a kind of a sense of a cosmic connection to everything. I mean, there are all different ways we can make meaning in the world. But I, but I think, I think uh, being deprived of meaning is the worst you can't flourish unless you have some sense that my life has some kind of uh, connection to a larger story of my community and of mankind and the future. I suppose some people would say, um, you know, it, it has to do with family and friends and just, you know, my connections there and being able to support the people I love. Um, right. And that's, is, that's, that's, that's being meaningful to the people around you that you're, they're better off because you're doing your job in the world. Okay. Okay. You you say that that um, flourishing and actually I think you, you say virtue and you know, 
maybe even wisdom, I'm not, I don't know, um, that they emerge through a process of collective inquiry. And, and you take that from Dewey, you're very specific about that. Could you yeah. say something about that? Yeah, what I would say is that, um, I wouldn't say, okay, so the kinds of rules we have about what's the good way to live, those have been settled throughout history, you know, by, by, by the general process of, you know, let's, it's good for us not to kill each other. You know, we, we come, come to that kind of agreement, so historically. And we still kind of agree with that for the most part. It's a pretty good rule, you know. Uh, uh, or if we're going to kill people, we had better have a damn good reason, you know, <laughs> that, and ones that the people around us would approve of in some kind of way. Um, but anyway, whatever solutions we reach, whatever conclusions we reach about what's the right way to live, they, they can become problematic at some point. Social structure changes, new inventions come about, you know, think about, for example, the way the birth control pill changed the way we look at sexual morality in the 1960s and so forth. There, there can be some change that happens and then you have to inquire again. Well, is what we used to think still right? You know, how important is virginity, uh, for example, before you marry? It used to be very important. Now, not so important, at least not in Western, you know, postmodern cultures. So the question is, how does that change? How do people's views about what's important change? And the, the point is that that's always a matter of contestation. You know, can people decide that they're transgender? You know, can homosexuals uh, marry and be in the military? Okay. People used to have one opinion of it. That opinion has changed. How does it change? There's a, there's a social discussion that goes on. And often that social discussion takes a very long time. So for example, the question about should women be able to vote? took about 75 years to settle. The question about uh, the world agreed that slavery was a normal way of doing things for thousands of years. You know, All of a sudden in the 1800s, that changes. How long did it take for people to change their minds about it? Well, again, it took maybe 7,500 years before, and the, the whole world changed at the same time. The Russians abolished serfdom you know, around the same time as the American Civil War. So there are changes that are occurring through local and global conversations, but they're, they're very, it's very slow change. And I think that's the appalling thing is that sometimes the, the change has to be slow because that's just the way social processes occur. There's always going to be difference of opinion. People have to argue it out. The way they usually end is not that people change other people's minds, but that one point of view in the discussion uh, dies out and a new generation comes up or some new problem arises that changes everybody's mind and they focus on that instead. <laughs> You know, it's, but, but it's interesting. For example, the, you know, we can talk about problems that get solved peacefully, like the question about whether Mormons can engage in plural marriage. Okay, that was a big issue. You know, when Utah wanted to enter the, the, the union, you know, as a state, it's not a big issue anymore. I mean, people have different opinions on it, but it's not a big issue. Um, should stores be closed on the Sabbath? Okay, that used to be a big issue. It's not so much a big issue anymore. So sometimes these get resolved over time peacefully. And, and other times, like in the Civil War, they don't get resolved peacefully. So, so that becomes an important question. You know, what can be resolved peacefully and what can't? I think the current fight over abortion is an example of another contentious issue that, that is difficult to see how it can be resolved now. And yet at the same time, I can imagine 10, 20, 30 years from now, it may disappear as an issue. There was a time, for example, when it wasn't an issue. Uh, in the year 1900, it wasn't outlawed in any state abortion. Okay, people just had them, midwives performed them. Then the obstetricians came about as a, as, a, uh, as, a, um, as a profession, and they were in competition with the midwives, and they were the ones who decided that abortion had to be banned to help, you know, help uh, 
create their greater power over the midwives. But that's how it began. And then and then in the 1970s, it wasn't an issue that divided religions, at least at least not Protestants from uh, uh, from Jews, for example. Billy Graham wasn't you know universally opposed to abortion. Um, the whole evangelical movement, you know, was open to abortion under certain conditions and so forth. And that changes when, you know, the Republican Party under Nixon decides they want to mobilize Catholics out of the out of the New Deal coalition. And then it, it gradually becomes politicized and then it becomes an issue for evangelicals down the line. But but just as things weren't an issue and then become an issue, you know, they can not become an issue again later on. It's a kind of an interesting process. So it's interesting to note that the most liberal abortion uh, law in any state in the United States was signed by Ronald Reagan, for example. I mean, there used to be that Republicans and Democrats did not differ on this issue. That's, that is interesting. And it's, it's, you know, the idea that you can take a kind of historical view and say, well, you know, this too shall pass and things are going to change. Um, that would be very helpful. But of course, we're living in a particular moment in time. So, um, right. And, and then there's the issue of climate change, which we don't have time to fix. And at the other time, on the other hand, social processes are slow and getting everyone on board is a slow process. So we're really in a bind at that point. We may not succeed. Yeah, yeah that, seems, that seems right. I mean, sometimes problems grow faster than solutions, right? And, and That's always true. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. There's always more problems, right? <laughs> Well, the other, nice. the, the other point I make out is that every solution creates a new problem. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, you invent antibiotics and, and infectious diseases go away, but now people live longer and get chronic diseases like, you know, cancer and heart disease. So it's, uh, you always have a trade-off. Um, horses are a pretty messy way to go about, you know, they, they fill, they fill the, the streets in New York with manure and so forth. You invent the motor car, people are very happy, you know, but then you have to you have to have an oil industry and you have to have expensive infrastructure and you have now motor vehicle injuries with you know brain trauma and you know all of a sudden you have new problems you have to fix then global warming so every every solution is only a temporary solution and, and that was one thing i got from dewey that every every solution has to be re-examined later on you know to see whether it's still a solution so so that's a commitment to that process of ongoing inquiry as a society that's right wonder how much how much we really do that i mean it seems to me as you said it tends to happen more haphazardly or when people die out or something like that this inquiry is uh, i don't know how much it's valued in society at large I mean, scientists sure they want scientists to come up with great solutions but but on the social level i'm not so sure yeah and there's also a question about how much change can a society go through at a, at a single time without losing its its coherence. So um, I, th I think what, I mean, every every single value we have is open to question, it could be. And if we, if we threw everything up in the air all at once, it would be a disaster socially. So the good news is we only focus on those that become a problem, <laughs> you know. But as social change becomes faster because technological change becomes faster, you know, then there's a question about how much can we tolerate, how much, you know, how much can we endure without, without going into constant turmoil about what's the right rule that we ought to be able to adopt. Yeah, I suppose that that's, I'm not sure how much you get into this in the book, but I suppose that that's one of the questions that come up, comes up that, that we, we do live in a world where change is so rapid that maybe solutions that have 
worked in the past, or at least have been ideals in the past that people could aspire to, maybe they just aren't going to work anymore. That's right. So in a society like the frontier society in the United States, when the only weapon that was available was a front-loaded single-shot musket, the Second Amendment made sense. Now that you have assault weapons everywhere, does it still make sense? I mean, conditions change, and you have to relook at things again. Mm -hmm. So maybe that brings us to the, the, um, the last chapter of your book that's called Only Connect, and, and it has to do with how people can coexist in a, in a positive way. Uh, and you talk about having the moral resources to move beyond group loyalty. Um, it seems like that, that group loyalty is becoming more and more of an issue. Right? That's one of our problems right now. People are so committed to their political group, maybe above all, but, but also, of course, other kinds of connections of, you know, I'm thinking of the evangelicals or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so the question is developing the moral resources to move beyond that. I mean, I suppose one one thing maybe you'd say about that is, well, that's what that's where wisdom comes in. Right? Is that a fair statement? Well, first of all, I don't think it's more of a problem now than it used to be. I mean, I think it's mm. always been the same problem. I mean, I always like to laugh about uh, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner used to have a routine called the 2,000-year-old man. And mm -hmm. 2000 year man remembers ancient history and he says the first national anthem was all of the caves can go to hell except cave number 57. <laughs> so I think that's the kind of group loyalty thing has always been a problem. And in fact, if you look at Chinese philosophical history, say during the Warring States period about two or 300 BC, the main problem that all the different philosophies they had like in the Chinese, they say it was a period of the, the, by, uh, the hundred philosophies. Okay. So it wasn't just Confucianism and, you know, and, and Taoism and legalism, and they had many different philosophies, but they all revolved around the same essential question, which is now that we're becoming a nation state, now we're becoming an empire, how much do I just have loyalty to my family and my clan? And how much do I owe broader society in general? And there's always a conflict about that. And I think, I think that's part of the way we're built uh, as human beings in terms of that we all have a, a kind of natural tendency to care about others. Okay, if a child cries, we all kind of look to it and see how can we soothe that child. Uh, Mencius gives the example of a child about to fall into a well, and you, you see that about to happen. And immediately anyone would feel shock and alarm at that, you know, if somebody steps in a puppy's paw and it yelps, you go, oh, poor puppy, you know, you see, you see, um, you see people in the midst of an earthquake digging out in Iran on the on the evening news, for example, and your heart goes out to these people. So, there is this natural impulse to care about people, but we care about our families and the people we see face to face and our friends more than we care about these distant others. It's just the way we're built. Um, the Confucians would say that benevolence starts in the family and then extends out, and that it's a lifetime process of extending it out to other groups. Um, so I think there's a conflict when we, we understand that we all ought to uh, love our neighbors like we love ourselves and we all ought to be benevolent towards everyone and we owe a certain fairness to everyone in society. Um, but we also believe uh, my family and friends first, you know, and when times are flush, uh, it's maybe easy to be generous to other people. And then when there's times are scarce, then you draw the circles around and you, you just protect your, your particular group. So, so I think that's the fundamental conflict we have when it comes to justice and fairness and benevolence is how much do we, how much is it tied to our specific group and how much can we extend it beyond? And I think it's always problematic. It's not, it's not easy to do. Um, 
I mean, that's one reason why uh, on a news story about a famine, say somewhere, the news story will focus on one family and what they're going through, one child who's starving, because you can identify with that more than a million people starving. That doesn't make any sense to us. Um, or is, are there resources that can help us do that? Yeah, we have all these stories, the story of the Good Samaritan in the Bible, or, you know, there are many stories of the, in the Buddha's previous life as great acts of compassion towards other beings. Um, um, we have, um, in the, I think about 30 times in the Old Testament, it says, love the stranger as you love yourself, not love your neighbor. You know, it's, uh, there, there are these resources that enable us to care about other people, but they're, it's still an upward um, push for most of us to do it. I think that's a lifetime project of caring about people who are very different from us. You know, you, you may think you're very good at it. And then you're walking down the street in New York City and you see uh, um, a homeless alcoholic on the street, you know, um, who, who's stinky, you know, and they're asking for a couple of dollars, you know, and immediately you're thrown into some kind of turmoil about should I be generous? Oh, he's just going to spend it on drink, you know. Uh, He's not like us people. Why doesn't he get a job? You know, all these, all these kind of thoughts that separate me from that other person come up. And and yes, you may make the decision in the end to be generous. And sure, why not? And and you may even make it a practice. Whenever someone asks me, I'll give them something, you know, as a way of enlarging your heart in some kind of way. But there's still, it's still a push always to do that. Um, so I think it's a problem. I think it's always going to be a problem. Um, and. Uh, what we can say is that the solutions to a lot of the problems we have in the world require our extending our cooperation with other people and caring about other people more. So that if we're going to solve the problem of, um, of infections that come up like COVID in the future, it means not just hoarding vaccines for the wealthy countries, but if you do, if you do that and the poor countries don't have them, then new, new strains just develop in the poor countries and spread to the wealthy countries. You can't segregate yourself out. Or if we're going to solve global warming, it means everyone has to cooperate on it in some way, even if we don't like each other. Or um, if you're going to deal with the problem of terrorism or transnational corporations and not, not paying taxes or whatever the problem is, it takes broader and broader networks of cooperation. You can't just solve problems on your own anymore. So, so maybe, uh, so there's that kind of push that we have to think bigger and think wider and include more and more. Uh, on the other hand, it's hard for us to do. So maybe, maybe we won't succeed at these efforts, you know? Well, well you do make the point, and, and I think maybe this is a good place to bring our discussion to an end. You make, you make the point that, sure, we're not going to agree. You know, sure, we, we can't expect to have consensus, um, but the aim is, is to remain human in each other's eyes. I thought that was really important. Yeah, I spend a lot of time on that in the book. Um, how do you talk to people who are on the other side of the divide? And, and I think it's important that if we're talking to someone who has a very different viewpoint of ours, our job is not to convert that other person. That never works or hardly ever works. You know, just like no one, I can't imagine a Trump supporter could talk to me and make me become a Trump lover. I mean, I can't imagine how that would happen. But it's the same, but the other side is true as well. I can't convince them that he's a bad person, you know or an exemplar of a very bad person, that he's a psychopath or something like that. So the question is, if we can't convince each other, what do we do? And I think the important thing is we don't demonize each other, that if we talk to each other, if we can find a way to talk to each other, which is open-hearted and present and non-abusive and non-controlling, and just try to hear each other's point of view and understand where the other person is coming from, we're not gonna end up agreeing with them, but we'll understand that where they're coming from makes sense from their particular history and their particular environment and where they're coming from. 
and that we can agree to disagree, but still say, but you know what, we're, you know, we're just still human beings. We're not enemies. We, we may be competitors. We may have to, I may have to defeat you, you know, at the ballot box on this particular issue, but it doesn't mean I have to hate you. And so the question is, how can you strenuously fight for the values that are important to you without being against other people? And there I'm looking at the examples of uh, the Buddha and Martin Luther King and Mohandas Gandhi and people like that who said, you know, you have to maintain, you're fighting ideas or conceptions or practices, but you're not fighting people. And that we're all, and we all kind of have to find some way to say, okay, you know, uh, what I know, I know some Republicans now call de Democrats Democrats, for example. And, th and that's what we're trying to avoid, or, or when Trump calls people vermin. You know, but the left is just as guilty of that as well. This this person is a racist, and he's a, you know he's he's unredeemable because of his particular abhorrent beliefs. Well, you know, when I was growing up in my neighborhood, everybody was racist to some degree. You know, um, my aunt my aunt Harriet, for example, you know had had horrible things to say, but you know what? She wasn't a bad person entirely. You know, she had abhorrent views. We always were arguing with her about them, but she was a very sweet person, and you know she remembered our birthdays, and you know she. <laughs> You know, she, the things she, that really mattered. <laughs> she wasn't cruel to people in her everyday life. You know, so you have to honor people, and and you have to realize that everybody you love has something wrong with them. Okay, and everything that everyone that you know believes something that isn't true, <laughs> and uh, we have to be we have to be generous to each other in some kind of way. Well, that is a nice place to end. But I realized that I never did ask you something I meant to ask at the beginning, um, which is the title of the book. Can you explain? The, how you came to call this book The House We Live In? Yes, I can. Uh, it comes from a song I heard when I was in third grade. There was a, there was a movie out, I think it came out in 1945 and 1946 that starred Frank Sinatra. It was a short, won some Academy Awards. And it was a, it was a kind of an anti-prejudice kind of propaganda film put out by Hollywood. Called, and the song was The House We Live In. It was sung by Frank Sinatra, became a big hit. Paul Robeson sang it as well. But it includes the verse, you know, what is America to me? And the answer is all races and religions, they're America to me. And when I heard that song in third grade, I said, oh, yeah, that's the American credo. And I thought everyone believed it in America. So it was a big shock to understand it was really a propaganda piece and that most of a good part of America didn't believe in it, that we still lived. I was too young at that point to understand about segregation in the South, for example, and Jim Crow and everything else. So I understood it was part of a continuing battle in an attempt to include everybody into American society. So. Uh, I think that's the house we live in. We have, everybody lives in this house and we have to find some way to get along and order it, you know, and not kill each other. So that was the idea. Okay. Well, that is a good place to end. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, I've enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure that listeners will also. So we will, uh, we'll close with that and uh, tell them, well, tell me uh, what's your next project? What are you working on? Ah. <sighs> I'm in the midst of uh, working on an encyclopedia article for the St. Andrew's uh, Encyclopedia of Theology on, on Western Buddhism and uh, on Western psychology and Buddhism. So I'm finished the first try often. That's that's my new project right now. Okay, great. Well, thanks. Thanks very much, Seth. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Take it's been care. a pleasure too. Thank you, Jack.